Today is April Fool's Day. It's a day that we fill with April Fool's jokes. I, I don't know, I think it's kind of fun to pull off a good joke on someone else. Now, that might, that might upset some of you that think it's cruel. I guess I just have an evil streak in me somewhere. Uh, this happened last month when Pastor Allen was on vacation. And the day before he was returning to the office, I was standing in the foyer of the, of the fellowship center talking with Chris and Catherine, and I said, let's play a little joke on Alan when he comes back. So I, I, I suggested that Chris write a letter of resignation, and then we would just put it into his mailbox there when he came in the next day. So Chris wrote this formal letter, and here's what it was. Dear pastors, Mark, Alan, and the elders of Nola Community Church, I've had the honor of serving as pastor at Knollwood for the past 13 years. And during that time, I've been privileged to see God do wonderful things in the lives of our members and in our community. God has also done important things in my life, helping me grow as a follower of Jesus and as a minister of the gospel. In that spirit, it is with a heavy but hopeful heart that I must announce my resignation. I've wrestled with what the next step is in ministry for Mary and myself, and after much prayer and discussion, we sense God's calling to serve in a new ministry context. My role in this new ministry setting begins on June 1. During the interim time, I'd like to do whatever I can to help make this transition as smooth as possible and as honoring to the people of Knollwood as possible. I would like to thank the pastors, staff, elders, and the congregation for allowing me the privilege to serve alongside of you all of these years. Blessings, Chris Mendez. <laughs> well, we slid this letter of resignation in among all the papers that were in Alan's mailbox, and then we, we waited with eager anticipation all morning for him to go to the, his box and pull his stuff out, but he didn't do it. He was so busy with everything since he'd been gone for two weeks. And, uh, and it wasn't until mid-afternoon that he emptied out his box. And by that time, Catherine had left for the day, and Chris was out for the afternoon. So I just sat in my office. <laughs> and then, Alan walked into my office. His face was ashen. And he, and, and, and he just he asked, is this really true? He might have said some other things, I forget, but I thought he was going to pass out. And... After a minute or two, I couldn't hold it in anymore, so I started to laugh. And needless to say, Alan was relieved. So, so I said, well, why don't you get back at Chris? <laughs> why, don't, why don't you... So here's what Chris did. So here's what Alan did. He wrote this at the bottom of Chris's letter, from Alan to Chris. This really saddens me greatly. However, it confirms what God laid on my heart while on vacation, <laughs> that your time was up here, and it would be best if you moved on to another ministry opportunity that God has revealed. I would be more comfortable if you did not use June 1 as your departure date, since that is a strategic time as new folks are coming. I would prefer your departure date be March 30, when I will instruct payroll to terminate your role here. <laughs> oh, life is good. Well, I have to tell you, Alan wasn't fooled. He, you know, when he got it, he came in later that day, and he wasn't fooled too much. But this is Easter Sunday, and it's a day when Christians all around the world celebrate this signature event of Christianity, the resurrection of Christ. But what if it was just a great big April Fool's joke? And that's the approach I want to take this morning as we consider possible explanations for this event that's celebrated. 
But I need to begin first with three certainties, three realities that have to be taken into consideration uh, because they form the context for an April Fool's joke. The first is that Jesus died by crucifixion. Uh, this fact is recorded not only in the four gospel accounts in the New Testament, but also in a number of non-Christian source materials from that same period. One highly critical scholar has admitted that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. The second reality is that Jesus predicted his resurrection numerous times during his earthly ministry. This man from Nazareth spoke of his future death and resurrection. In the Gospel of Mark, which we believe may well be the first book written in the New Testament early, very few years after these events, uh, we read this, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. A little while later, he said to his disciples, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus was dead. He had predicted his resurrection. And then thirdly, the tomb was empty. If the body was still in the tomb days after the crucifixion, anyone, including the Roman and Jewish authorities, could have simply produced the body and put this ridiculous claim of resurrection to rest once and for all. When you read the Gospel accounts, one of the interesting things that's there and aspects about the report of an empty tomb and purported resurrection is that the primary witnesses are women. In all the Gospels, they're listed as the first witnesses of the empty tomb. Now, why is that an odd thing to do? It is because of the very low view of women in that day and in that culture. They were viewed as unreliable witnesses. And yet the disciples, the early church, the biblical documents list them as the first witnesses. Why would you do that when their very testimony would be questioned as being credible? Unless, of course, it might have been true. As Gary Habermas writes, if the gospel writers had originated the story of the empty tomb, it seems far more likely that they would have depicted men discovering its vacancy and being the first to see the risen Jesus. He goes on to say, thus the empty tomb appears to be historically credible in light of the principle of embarrassment. Former Oxford University church historian William Wand writes, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb. And those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. And so we begin with this. Jesus, a rabbi from Nazareth, teacher, miracle worker, is executed by the Romans. Previously, on numerous occasions, he predicted his death and his resurrection. He's taken down from the cross. He's placed in a tomb, hewn into the rock. And then days later, the tomb is empty. Now listen, just because the tomb is empty, that doesn't mean Jesus was raised from the dead. All it means is that the tomb was empty. So who could have pulled off the spectacular April Fool's joke because the body's missing? 
such that a new religion would spring up and over the next two millennia, millions of people would become believers in this one they said was raised from the dead and become followers of him. Who perpetrated this falsehood? So let's look at who might have attempted this April Fool's joke. Now, the disciples of Jesus, th th those guys would be the natural candidates, the, the expected prospects of pulling off this joke. So just imagine that they're sitting around and the shock of their crucifixion is worn off and then someone says, hey, we had a good thing going here. We've got all this attention. We've got people following us. You know, let, let's just steal the body and let's say that he rose from the dead. You know, we can fool everybody, including those that are following him and proclaiming that he is Messiah. And so they sneak off in the dead of night and they, they fight off the guard that was posted there. They move a stone that's in front of the opening to the cave that's estimated to weigh in excess of 2,000 pounds. And then they begin to proclaim that he has been raised from the dead. That could happen, right? Well, let's take a little deeper look at the likelihood of that. The first thing we need to realize is that the disciples truly believed that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he actually appeared to them in risen form. And that they believed that they saw him after the resurrection is a fact that's held by almost all who have studied the historical evidence around the empty tomb and of the history of that day. They, they were transformed. They were timid, fearful men who all fled when Jesus was arrested. Peter was the only disciple that followed after the arresting force. John is the only disciple that stayed around to see the crucifixion take place. So we see them huddling in fear and, and, and afraid, hiding away from the authorities. But after they say that Jesus appeared to them, they are fearless. They, they have such great boldness to declare that God raised him from the dead and that they were eyewitnesses to this man. The Apostle Paul, who as Saul was a persecutor of the church, but he describes the fact that he was on his way to Damascus to arrest these followers of Jesus, and the risen Christ appeared to him. He writes a letter to the Christians in Corinth. Uh, the date is around 55 AD. And in that letter, he quotes what most scholars believe is one of the earliest creedal statements of the events that we've just described they occur, and it is, this creed apparently came together within a few short years after the crucifixion. And here's the statement from 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Now, many critical scholars believe that Paul received this statement from Peter and James when he went to Jerusalem just three years after his conversion on the road to Damascus. If that's a fact, then he was aware of this creedal statement within five years of the crucifixion and purported resurrection. Insufficient time for things to be romanticized and exaggerated. Insufficient time for legend to grow up. The second thing we should consider 
related to this possible hoax is how in the world do you keep a secret like that going? In addition, all of the apostles but one suffered a martyr's death. And to the very end, they held that they had seen the risen Christ. And then they were beheaded or stoned or crucified. Chuck Colson was a hatchet man for President Richard Nixon, and he was the first member of the administration to be incarcerated on Watergate-related events. Speaking of that scandal that brought about the resignation of a president, he wrote this, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, perpetrated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, quote, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks, and then everybody jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president were facing was embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, and execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. To be honest, I think we can take the disciples off the hook. I don't think they pulled this joke off. It just doesn't square with the facts that we have. Uh, then there are the Roman and Jewish authorities. You know, maybe one of these groups thought that this would be a great way to mess with the followers of Jesus. You know, we'll sneak in and we'll just take the body and remove it. But the problem is that things quickly got out of hand. And within a few short weeks, these men and women begin to proclaim publicly in the marketplace that this Jesus was alive. And more and more people began to believe their message and to follow this one who is dead and now proclaimed alive. This was not good news for the Jewish and Roman authorities. You know, more than anything else, peace was a valued commodity. Uh, people could have their gods and worship their gods as long as they worship Caesar, but it was most important that they were peaceful in doing so. But things are getting out of hand. And the Jesus movement was leading to singular worship of a risen Savior. But the solution is easy. It's simple. All they had to do was get the body that they stole away, parade it out in Jerusalem. You know, they didn't. They couldn't. You know, a death body would have been the death knell of this new religion that proclaimed a risen founder. So I think we can rule out the Romans and the Jewish authorities. They're off the hook as well. So, you know, it leaves me with one other candidate who might have pulled off this joke, and that's Jesus. Maybe he pulled off the greatest trick until Houdini later came along. Now, the joke originated in, in a theory called the swoon theory. 
You know, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He simply fainted. He swooned. His body was taken down from the cross. It was put into the tomb. And in the coolness of the tomb, he was revived. He came to. And then he rolled the stone away from inside. He fought off the guard. And then he went out and he appeared to his disciples uh, and, and, and spent 40 days with them and then disappeared. The first problem is with the assumption that Jesus didn't die. There's ample credible evidence that Jesus was indeed dead. In fact, it's a miracle that he survived the scourging long enough even to be put on the cross. You want a description sometime, go look at the description of what a scourging was like. With, with, with so much loss of blood being cut down to the very bone with the whips that were used. And then we have the Roman centurion in charge of the crucifixion, this execution signifying that he was dead. Listen, Roman soldiers were very proficient in execution, and they were convinced that they knew what death looked like, and this man was dead. Finally, even if Jesus pulled off this joke, how could he appear triumphant in the physical condition he would have been in, such that the disciples would believe that he had cheated death? David Strauss was a 19th century German theologian. Let me just put you where he's at. He doesn't believe Jesus was God, and he certainly was no believer in the resurrection. But he basically destroyed this argument 200 years ago, even though you'll still hear this theory today. Here's what Strauss wrote. It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and who had still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. Such a resuscitation could only have weakened the impression which he had made upon them in life and in death. At the most, could only have given it a sad voice, but could by no possibility have changed their sorrow into enthusiasm, have elevated their reverence into worship. I think it's reasonable to dismiss the empty tomb as a joke by Jesus. And so, let's see where we stand. Jesus died by crucifixion. He predicted his own death and his own resurrection, and the tomb was empty. How do we explain that? How do we explain the scores of people, including, Paul says, more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are alive, so you can haul them into court, question them under oath. How in the world, then, is going on here? Um, your answer may well be conditioned by your presupposition. If you believe that we live in a closed universe and that everything must have a naturalistic explanation, then you need to come up with a better theory. You've got to come up with another story, another joke that's been pulled. But if you're willing to entertain that God might exist, that he might have been responsible to do something that defies a naturalistic scientific explanation, then it is possible, even plausible, that the resurrection was real. It was no joke. Dr. William Lane Craig writes, as long as the existence of God is even possible, it's possible that he acted in history by raising Jesus from the dead. So does it really matter? Well, I would say infinitely yes. 
And I would suggest two important reasons. The first is that if Jesus was raised from the dead as he predicted, it gives clear credibility to all of his other claims that he made in his earthly ministry, including the claim to be God, to be God in the flesh. The second reason it matters has to do with the moral predicament of those of us who are members of the human race. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He goes on in chapter 6 to say that the wages of sin is death, speaking of spiritual death. If God exists, and we're going to address that issue next week, and if he's revealed as God in the Bible, then we all stand guilty before him and under judgment because of our sin. And this is where the importance of the resurrection comes to play. In 1 Corinthians 15, the same chapter where we have that creedal statement we looked at earlier, Paul writes this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But the message of Easter is a message of hope. It is that Jesus, God in the flesh, came and took our sins upon himself and bore the wrath of God that was due to you and to me. And so when he's on the cross, God punishes him instead of punishing us. And in his death, God's justice is satisfied. So that if a person believes in Jesus, trusts in him, God is able to forgive them without diminishing at all his holiness and his justice. And when we do that, an amazing thing happens. John, one of the disciples, writes in his gospel account to all who received him, speaking of Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Later, he writes a verse that many of us probably learned as children, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So we see what a message of hope Easter is. It's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of assurance that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the God-man, God in the flesh. Every one of us faces a choice when we examine facts. What will we do with Jesus? I've closed often my Easter messages with um, something that comes from the great English literary scholar and author C.S. Lewis. I haven't found anything better, so I'll do it again today. He writes this in the book Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying, the really foolish thing that people often say about him, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So the empty tomb drives us either to Accept what God did in Christ and the truth of that event in history or come up with another theory 
come up with another cruel joke that might have been there. And so we have a choice. Do I reject what Jesus did for me on the cross and know that I will stand before God and pay for my own sins? Or do I simply accept the gift of salvation, of forgiveness that God has offered me in Christ and demonstrated that his death was sufficient for your sin because God brought him out of the tomb and he's the risen Christ today. So as I close, I want you to consider your response to this Easter message. April Fool's joke or an amazing truth that God raised Jesus from the dead. Would you pray with me? If there happens to be someone here this morning, and I don't know, that maybe has never truly placed their trust in Christ. Maybe you've been in church all your life. Maybe today's the first day. But you see the need for a Savior. As you look at your life, you recognize that you have fallen short of God's standard. And you also see the great love that God demonstrated in going to the cross for you in Christ then I invite you just where you're seated in the quietness of your own heart. Just do business with God. Admit to God that you're a sinner, that you need salvation, that you want your sins forgiven. And just a simple prayer of inviting Christ into your life, placing your trust in him. Lord, for those of us that have already done that, might this Easter day be one of pausing to thank you for the wonderful gift of Christ. And the fact that he died for us, that because his death was sufficient to satisfy your justice, you raised him from the dead, that he's now a risen Savior. Lord, thank you for this blessed gift. And might we never take it for granted. Every day might we be grateful. Lord, live your life through us in a way that we bring honor to you and to show others that we have a hope that's in Christ. And so we thank you for this day. In Christ's name I pray.